Good evening. Welcome to the Spirit Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kendall tonight. And our topic is distress, debt, and discontent. Mm. Those sound like almost like negative things, don't they? Why would we talk about that? Distress, debt, and discontent. Well, the reason is that when David was just getting started, David who later in the Old Testament became King David, uh, the first group of people who followed him were 400 people who were distressed and in debt and discontented. Those were David's first followers, and I'm going to compare that to Jesus, who had a lot of friends who were tax collectors and sinners and so forth. And what is this image of what, what is that distress and debt and discontent that actually helps us and turns us toward the Lord in some interesting way? So if you're interested in going on that journey, please join us, good friends, and let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We pray for your increased presence among us this evening, Lord. Open the pages of your word to us so that we can understand your heart and your mind and how it is that you would have us be with one another. Amen. Amen. Sending love to those of you who are out there online and getting the audio podcast and on the phone and all you glorious people who are here in the room. Thank you for joining us. Um, I, For some reason, that distress, debt, and discontent, I don't know why I love that, but I just think it's, it's great. And I enjoy the fact that the uh, Bible is willing to talk about things that are, that are negative and yet put a different kind of spin on them. You can see that in terms of society, uh, if people are not distressed, if people are happy, if they're contented, if they're not particularly overburdened with debt or crushed under some load like that, uh, they pretty much want to keep the status quo. The people who want to shake it up are the people who are not having a good time, right? <laughs> the people who are not enjoying the status quo and they want to shake it up. So it kind of makes sense that if you have a new person coming in, like David uh, coming in, and uh, that, that those would be the people who would gravitate to a brand new thing. Uh, but aren't these kind of dangerous people? The, uh, those are dangerous people, the, the discontented and the indebted and the distressed and so on. So uh, what, what's going on here? Let's have a look in the Old Testament, if you will, uh, at First uh, Samuel. So to get there, you go start all the way at the left, go through the five books of Moses, Joshua and Judges, and you get to First Samuel. And I want to go all the way back to chapter 22, because this is sort of our text, if anything, tonight about uh, these people who gathered around David. Now, David was quite young at this time. There already was an anointed uh, king, Saul, but he was kind of going off the rails, and David had to escape to the Philistines. And uh, look at 22 verses 1 and 2 right there. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Yes, so the, first, the actual first group that went there was just his own family. You know, his own family went there to be with him. 
But then listen to all these other people in verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Yes, 400 of them, and it's interesting that it doesn't say some people who were this way, some people who were that way, some people who were the other way. Doesn't it say, dear reader, that everyone, doesn't it say that? It does. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and then it's not just that they all hung out together, but he became a leader. He became their leader. Right, He was in a leadership position with them, not just one amongst the crowd. Uh, so this was this group that he gathered to himself. Um, now, part of what we do in these Bible studies is to try to understand what's going on with the, what, you know, what is the spiritual meaning of this distress and debt and discontent. And so we'll go look at other passages that seem related in some way. And to make it easy to swing through the Bible, what we'll do is just take them pretty much in sequence from left to right, but topically they'll be kind of all over the map. So I'll try to help you, you know, set this up, what we're looking at. So if you turn to the left, back through Joshua and Judges to Deuteronomy, the fifth of those books of Moses there, I wanted to read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30 to 31, then I'll try to highlight uh, why we're reading this. When you are in distress... Oh, aha, see? When you're in distress... Okay, here's going to be advice for when you're in distress, okay? And all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. Now this seems important because uh, Swedenborg says that David is an image of the Lord, of Jesus when he was in this world. And so uh, this, one of the spiritual underpinnings behind this is that when we're in distress, we can turn to the Lord and he will be merciful and he won't forsake us, he won't destroy us, he won't forget the covenant that we did. And so it's almost as if, it's not that the Lord wants us to go through distress, but when we're in that state, it may draw us toward the Lord. If we're perfectly comfortable and complacent, then why should we, you know, then we're okay. We don't really need the Lord. But when we're in distress, then it's a little more like, oh, Lord, I, I need help here. And so if when we're in that state of distress and then we seek the Lord, then we can get into a closer relationship with Him. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 28, which is this amazing chapter. Seems like every week we end up reading from Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is this amazing list of um, curses, if good, a few blessings if you do the good things, and a lot of curses if you do the bad things. And um, I want to look at Deuteronomy 28. Look at verse 53 all the way down there. It's a long chapter. Now this is pretty... Um, if you want to get some idea of what Scripture means by being in distress, and I should explain a little bit about these words. Let me set this up just a tad here. Um, the word for distress comes from a Hebrew word that means narrow. Narrow. And we'll see some passages where it's contrasted with being in what's called a broad place. 
So in other words, you're, don't we still say today, so I'm in a tight spot or something, right? It's like a tight spot. Don't we say I'm under pressure or stress or things, you know, that's what it is. It's a, it's a, it literally means a narrowing. Uh, what, what that straits are, debt we understand. We'll talk a little bit more about the meaning of that. And the discontent is actually a phrase that means bitterness of soul, like you're, you're bitter in your soul. It's a pretty deep state of bitterness and unhappiness. Okay, so this is kind of an X-rated passage. I apologize on behalf of the Old Testament, uh, but it says some things about distress. So let's pick up at verse 53 here. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. In the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. Straits is the same Hebrew word as the distress. Straits, not with a G-H-T, but just S-T-R-A-I-T, means a narrow, a narrow, a difficult place like that. And so you see siege is another you can imagine, if, if a city's just free to function, that's fine. But if it's under siege, right, you can't get enough water, you can't get out to get the crops, they're, they're cutting off everything, you're in danger, you're worried about them, you know, throwing fire over the wall or whatever. This is the kind of spiritual state that it's talking about. And so it's saying that if you don't obey the commandments, this is something that will happen uh, to us. Go on. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind. Mm. So this will really undermine sort of people's nice personalities and stuff. Go on. So that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat. This is kind of, kind of horrible passage, isn't it? You know, I'm not even going to share the meat of my children who I'm having to eat. It's so horrible. Okay, go on. Because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Mm, we talked about gates a little while ago, didn't we? Go on. The tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and, to, and her daughter her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears. For she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Okay, that's enough of that. But I wanted you to get across, it's not just like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm under a little pressure right now. You know, this is talking about horrendous situation. You know, you're, everything's being cut off by the enemy. And so people are doing desperate, horrible things because they're in these straits, in this distress. It's the same Hebrew word. So uh, I hope that uh, paints a, a picture for you of the kind of thing that it's talking about with this distress. These are people who've gone through horrible things. And so when David comes along, they're just like, I'm going with him, you know. Like, my life is not working here. I, I, this is looking like something better to me. Let's turn to the right and go through Joshua to Judges. Mm-hmm. Judges <laughs> chapter 9. Uh, 
this is kind of the reverse of the David situation, but it's just interesting. It, it, the scholars use this to indicate that this was the kind of thing that went on back at that time. Look at 9, verse 4. This is Abimelech, who we read about in the last few weeks. And what does he do when he gets some money? So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. Good. With which... Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Yeah. So, in other words, you know, he couldn't get nice people or something. You know, it's the worthless and reckless people who, who join his crew. Now, that's Abimelech. He has a negative meaning. David has a positive meaning. But it shows you that this kind of thing goes on. It sort of makes sense, doesn't it? And look at Judges chapter 11, because there's this good person whose name is Jephthah, but he comes from an interesting background. Again, a little bit X-rated. Apologies, friends. The Bible, what can you do? Okay, let's start at verse 1 in Judges 11. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. Yes. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Yeah, that's right. And so he was the son of a prostitute, and so he doesn't get to inherit in the same way with the other sons, and they drive him out. And what does he do in verse 3? Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless, men, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Yes, they did. And so, again, he goes out and then people who aren't working out in society, the misfits and whatever, they all gravitate to him because he, he's out there, you know. Uh, this is the kind of people that he attracts to himself. And so then there's a war that goes on in the next few verses. And they finally say, look at this in, in verse 6. So the war is going on. They're having a difficult time. They go to fetch him out of the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Commander. It was like that captain that we had before, isn't it? Like David was a captain over there. So Jephthah, come be our captain. I like Jephthah's response. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Oh, you see, distress kind of changes things, doesn't it? You know, they're at war now. So when, as long as we were in peace, we don't want that guy around. Oh, but now we're in distress. Like, oh, Jephthah, can you come back here and help us? I thought you hated me. I thought you kicked me out. You know, and so he does come back and he wins this battle for them. Okay, that's in Judges there. All right. Uh, okay, let's, um, let's turn to the right and go to 1 Samuel. So you just skip through Ruth there and go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. So you remember that the word discontent in there for these three different kinds of people who joined David. The discontent one, the third one, means bitterness of soul. And so, do you remember that there was this woman named Hannah? This was mother of Samuel the prophet. Let's read from verse 9 there in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 
So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. Mm. How was she feeling, would you say? And she was in bitterness of soul Mm. and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Yes, bitterness of soul. So here's a picture of what we're talking about, bitterness of soul. She was, she was, you know, greatly, uh, she'd had a difficult time that it describes in the earlier uh, verses there. Uh, she had not been able to have children and so on. She was, she was tormented about all this. So she's in bitterness of soul and she prays to the Lord and she weeps a great deal and she vows a vow that if she can have a child that she will devote him to religious service to the temple and everything. And that's what happens. She has little Samuel and they make him a little priest outfit and he goes into the temple and everything. And so this bitterness of soul leads to a very good outcome. But she's, you see in in verse 13, that she was speaking in her heart and only her lips moved. She wasn't saying anything out loud. So he actually thought that she was drunk. And she says what in verse 15 to defend herself? But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. Ah, bitterness of soul is like sorrowful spirit, right? Same thing, okay? I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Mm, That's beautiful. So that pouring out of her soul before the Lord. So what does it mean, this distress and debt and discontent? So the discontent is uh, this bitterness of soul. Hannah experiences this bitterness of soul here. And what we do in Bible study, if you're not familiar with it, is that we'll go look at all these different passages, and then amazingly at the end, I just wrap it all up, don't I? With a nice neat bow, and I just like everything just clicks. You know, it's going to be great. Okay, so uh, <laughs> most of the time, right? Um, <laughs> let's go to 1 Samuel um, chapter 3. 30 there, chapter 30. Trying to swing through in order here. Uh, Now, this is about the men who were with David, where we started. You know, we started with those people who were distressed and in debt and discontented. And uh, then David does a battle. This was, I think, when they'd increased to 600 people because more people had joined him. And there were 200 people who couldn't fight and stayed back. Four of them went and fought, and 200 of them stayed back. Uh, And so look at verses 21 and 22, because it gives you some idea of the character of these people who joined David. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, Mm. whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Yes. And what were these men like? Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Yes. Okay. So these worthless and wicked people were part of the group that had gone out on the attack, the 400. And they're saying, we're not going to share the spoils with the 200. You know, they didn't even fight. And David says, no, 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 they're going to, they're, they're, every, everybody will benefit from this. We're all, we're all equal here. But it gives you kind of a flavor of the kind of people who are with them. It's not like just a cute little expression. No, these were, <laughs> you know, the, the, these were pretty rough 
pretty rough people. Um, let's go to 2 Samuel, shall we? 2 Samuel. Let's go back to 2 Samuel um, 24. Part of the philosophy of this Bible study is that each individual passage may be baffling in itself, but sometimes when you hold them up together, they start to shed a little light on each other, a little understanding comes. So that's what we like to try to do. Um, I love this phrase. Uh, yes, David is given this horrible choice. He has to suffer a punishment, but, he, but he's given a choice of three different horrible ways to suffer. Look at verse 13 and 14 there in 2 Samuel 24. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? So he had his choice of punishments. You want seven years of famine? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Hmm. Three months of enemy pursuit, seven years of famine. Okay, what's the other option? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Plague for three days, okay. Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And Gad was a prophet, so he's going to take it back to the Lord. And what does David say? And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Great distress. This situation really, what a horrible choice. Let's see, should we put everybody through seven years of famine or should we run from our enemies for three months or should we just have a massive plague for three days? You know, I'm in great distress. And what does he choose? This is meaningful. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into, into the hand of man. Now see, that's an interesting way to express it. I want to fall into the hand of the Lord, not into the hand of other human beings. You see, the first, uh, the, the enemies pursuing you was, was other people, right? But the plague uh, was the hand of the Lord. And so that's what happened. The, the plague came along and killed 70,000 people. And we won't talk about whether that was fair or not at this moment. But, um, uh, but what I want to draw your attention to there is he was in great distress and what does he do in distress? He says, I want to fall into the hand of the Lord. These people who are in distress went out to be with David, who was a symbol of the Lord. You know, when you're in distress, what's your option? Do you want to go to people? Do you want to go to the Lord? And, and David says, I want to fall into the hand of the Lord here. So that seemed uh, relevant to our topic this evening, do you not think? And, uh, oh, let's go to the right and go through First and Second Kings I want to go through First and Second Chronicles as well and go into Job. Who knows more about, if you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. Who knows more about distress than our good friend Job? Uh, look at Job chapter 3. He has another, it does seem like a negative, comment, uh, negative topic tonight, doesn't it? And uh, 3... <laughs> Don't know why this delighted me so much when I thought of it ahead of time. But anyway, we'll keep going. Job 3, verses 20 to 26. Let's see what Job is, is very unhappy there. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Oh, bitter of soul. Aha. This is like Hannah. This is like the discontented. 
Here we got bitterness of soul again. And so what does he mean by this bitterness of soul? Well, you'll hear Job is thinking, it, better not to have lived than go through what he's going through. Go on. Who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures. Mm, search for it. Mm. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Mm. Why is light given to a man who, whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Hedged in, narrow, right? Isn't that like the straightness, like, like you've, been, you've been boxed in, you, you can't go anywhere. Go on. For my sighing comes before I eat, mm. and my groanings pour out like water. Yeah. So like, shall we have breakfast at 7? I'll start groaning at 5.30, you know. Right. Go on. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Yes. Gives you a sense of what distress, right? What that means, bitterness of soul. Uh, it, it's talking about a very intense kind of emotional experience that we go through. Uh, have a look at Job chapter 20, if you will, uh, because there's an interesting statement in here that at least in some translations comes uh, out to be talking about self-sufficiency. Uh, look at Job 20, verse 22. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Oh, see, self-sufficiency puts you into distress. So you see what I mean? The distress is supposed to send us to the Lord. I'll fall into the hand of the Lord. But if you don't have that, uh, uh, then, it, then, uh, then you're just left in this distress. Go on. Every hand of misery will come against him. Mm, that's another great expression. That's right. So a little more from, from Job's uh, magnificent suffering. And how about Job 36? Uh, this is what the Lord wants to do for people. Uh, look at verses 15 and 16 and contrast that with the narrowness that we've been talking about. These terrible, difficult straits. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Indeed, he would, have, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. Mm. And what is set on your table would be full of richness. Yes, okay. So you see there's association there with this straightness or the distress with famine or hunger, as we've seen before in some of these other passages. So what the Lord wants to do is take, and what did it say? Take us out of distress to a what place? Into a broad place. A broad place, right? The Lord wants to bring us out of this narrowness into a wide open space. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Scripture talking about being in that narrow place to coming out to a broad place, and it says where there is no restraint. Isn't that what your translation said? Yes. In the old King James, it says where there is no straightness. You know, there's, there's, there's no restriction on you. Uh, you're free, and what is set on your table will be rich and wonderful. Um, yeah, so that's the other side of the equation. That's what we want to go for. Let's turn to the right and go to the Psalms. 
Psalm 18. Mm, seeking the Lord in here. Psalm 18. Now, this is a wonderful thing. This is a Psalm of David. Hey, look at the title of the Psalm. Do you want to read that right underneath where it says Psalm 18? What does it say? What kind of Psalm is this? Uh, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Oh, great. So this is when you get out of, when you're delivered from all the hand of those enemies and everything. And uh, what is, what's that opening line in verse 1 there? I will love you, O Lord, my strength. That's wonderful. Yeah, you just, wow, thank you so much. You know, I, I will love you. And then he describes a little bit of the difficult situation that he was in. Let's pick up at the fourth verse there. The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. Mm. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. Okay. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Yes. What you're supposed to do when you're in distress, cry out to the Lord. That, that's the way it ought it, If you're in that self-sufficiency thing, that doesn't work so well. But crying out to the Lord in that situation, that's a good thing to do. So cried unto the Lord, and he, and he hears. In this rest of this psalm, there's this amazing kind of rescue where the Lord bows the heavens and comes down. Be wonderful to have time to read all of that. Uh, but look at verse 19. It's it, you know the Lord comes down. There's arrows flying. There's lightning everywhere, and uh, it's this amazing kind of rescue. In verse 16, He draws him out of many. The Lord draws David out of many waters, delivers him from his strong enemy that was too strong for him. And look at verse 19. He also brought me out into a broad place. A broad place. I was in that narrow place. Doesn't it seem like there's almost a theme here tonight? You go out into that broad place. He brought me out into a broad place. And why would he deliver him like that? What would he do? He delivered me because he delighted in me. Wow. Because he delight, not just like, oh, yeah, he's complaining again. I guess I'll go rescue him. No, the Lord actually delights in him and brings him into this broad place that might have something to do with realizing, oh, the Lord loves me, you know. Uh, that's what you realize when you're out in that broad place. Uh, look at Psalm 118, if you will, friends. As we ponder all this, Psalm 119 is very long, so get the one just before that. Psalm 118, uh, verse 5. I called on the Lord in distress. Mm. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. Look at that, right? So what should I do then? What would you say we should do when we're in distress? <laughs> Seems like we should call on the Lord, shouldn't we? And maybe he'll set us in a broad place, whatever that squeezing is going on, whatever that pressure is. And look at verse 6, it's so beautiful too, isn't it? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's right. That's right. It gives you a whole different kind of perspective. That is right. So important. All right. Let's look at Isaiah. We've just got a few more of these things here. 
Let's look at Isaiah, I don't know, let's go to Isaiah. So you turn to the right, and pretty soon you get to Isaiah, and it's very big, can't miss it. And uh, let's go to chapter 29. Yes, okay, now let's see. Um, hmm. This is about being relieved from things that distress you. So let's look at verses um, 5 to 8 there. Let's look at that. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, mm. and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. Hmm. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. Oh, you see, this is about when it's going to end. Isaiah is sometimes very di difficult to understand. But uh, all those things that were distressing, Ariel is another term for Jerusalem or Zion. It's the city where David lived, it says in verse 1 up there. So we're back to David again. And, uh, but all these people who distress her, all that multitude coming against her will be like what? Just like a dream of a night vision. Look at verse 8. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Mm. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he awakes and indeed he is faint, and his, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Yes, you see, the situation that will happen to all the enemies of Zion is that they'll be like people who are dreaming that they're eating, but then they wake up and find out, oh no, you know, barking up the wrong tree. Oh, I thought I was drinking, but I, I wasn't. I'm still thirsty, I'm still craving things. And so uh, that's the way it's going to be. You, you, they, they think they're being fulfilled by this attack. They're not. And this is how the Lord is going to protect people when these enemies are distressing them. So I brought that in because of the distress factor there. Uh, there's another one in Isaiah I want to read. Let's go to 38, chapter 38. Let's look at verses 15 to 19. Yes, right. This will, there'll be a familiar phrase here in the first verse that we read him. What, sh <clears throat> what shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Mm, walking carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Difficult, difficult journey, right? Go on. O oh Lord, by these, things, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. So after this lifelong bitterness of soul, the Lord is going to bring us back to life, right? Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. Mm. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. 
Wow, so we walked all these years in bitterness of soul, but the Lord was doing something good to us while we were on that journey, while we were going through that discontent, that bitter feeling deep within, and the Lord was actually curing us of all these evils and things. Go on. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. Mm. The living, the living man, he shall praise you, as I, as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. Yes, the living. So it's about coming spiritually to life, that the living will praise the Lord because the Lord has done this wonderful thing. We walked all this time in the bitterness of our soul, but the Lord was taking those things away. And with this great love uh, has delivered us from this pit, cast all those sins at the back and, and healed us. Beautiful thing. Uh, look at Isaiah 42. There's another thing about the Lord's gentleness. I just love this passage. You're probably familiar with it, good friends. 42, verse 3, about the Lord. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. So, is this talking about gentleness? A bruised reed, okay, like you've got a blade of grass or something is bent over. He's not going to snap it. He's not going to snap it. And if there's a smoking flax, it's like, well, it's not really burning. There's a smoking. The Lord will not put it out. He's not going to quench it. There's something to work with. There's some smoke there. Do you see? It's sort of a distant thing, but do you see how all those people who are in distress and in debt and discontented could be like the bruised reed, like the smoking flax? And they're looking for something. It hasn't worked out well for them. They're in distress, but they're going to David. They're going out to Jephthah. They're going to Jesus, and they want, they're looking for something. And part of the mercy that they find in the Lord is that he doesn't break them. He doesn't say, oh, you're worthless. You're, you're vile people, you know. He works with them. He captains them. He commands them. He leads them and, and works with them to get them into a better condition. It's a really, really beautiful thing that the Lord does for us. Let's go into the New Testament, shall we? So flip to the right and you'll get to Matthew at some point there. And let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Just a few more scriptures, dear and patient friends. And then everything, can you see that bow in your mind's eye? It's just going to all be wrapped up. It's going to be great. Okay, 9 verse 10. Here's Jesus and who is he dining with? 9 verse 10 in Matthew. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Yes, that's right. The tax collectors were very much hated because they were people who were part of the Jewish community who were raising taxes for the Romans. And the way that they would do it is they'd pay the Romans what the Romans needed and then they would gouge a bunch more. And so their fellow people really hated them. And sinners were presumably people who were not obeying the, the Judaic Mosaic law. You know, they were doing something wrong uh, about the law. These are tax collectors and sinners, and everybody knew it. And that's who comes in and sits down with him. Isn't that like David gathering all these worthless people, the people who are in distress and debt and everything? The, uh, that's who sits down with him. So how do the Pharisees, who were 
you know, very well-educated and respectable people feel about this. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, this is absolutely astonishing. They're like, what are you doing? Yep. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Mm. But go and learn what this means. What this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Ah, there's the R word, my favorite word, repentance. Uh, the, the Lord has come to call sinners to repentance. How's he going to do that? By just hanging out with the people whose lives are doing okay and they're all right. You know, he goes, he specifically dines with those people because they're sick. They need him. He's a doctor, you know, and they're drawn to him. They know he's got something for them. So he's sitting down to eat and they all come pouring in and the Pharisees are freaking out. But that's exactly who the Lord wants to be dining with. Look at Matthew 11, if you will, two chapters over there. And look at 28 to 30, very familiar scripture, I imagine, to many of you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Mm. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that like him taking from the narrow thing and bringing you into a broad place and helping you understand, oh, if I'm with the Lord, what can anybody else do to me? And, you know, having different kinds of thoughts. And I want you to think about that heavy laden, like that's burdened, isn't it? You've got this weight that you're carrying. You're laboring. You're carrying this heavy burden. And he says, I'll give you rest. Okay, good, good. And let's look at Luke. Turn to the... Write and go through Mark to the Gospel of Luke. I want to go back to chapter 15. Very similar story to the one we just read. Might be based on the same thing, I don't know. But let's read 15, 1 to 7 here. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Yes. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Yeah, what is he doing? So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Yes, it's a beautiful, beautiful statement. I can't help but think he's a little tongue-in-cheek about people who need no repentance. I'm not sure there is <laughs> such a creature on the face of the earth, but, but still, he just says there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Uh, so what is David doing out there with those people? He's working with those people. He's drawing them along. And uh, he's working with them because they're drawn to him because their lives haven't worked out so well. So let's try to talk a little bit, at least, about the meaning of these things. 
uh, I've just written the words, for those of you getting the audio, the words distress and debt and discontent up here. Distress means narrowness. To me, uh, Swedenborg associates it with that feeling, like I think the kind of feeling you have if you're having a, a heart attack or an asthma attack where you can't breathe. You know, like it's so narrow you can't even like inflate your lungs or something. Uh, that straightness, that narrowness. And uh, uh, I want to read one more scripture. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about this one. Let's turn to the right and go um, halfway back to the book of Revelation from where we were in Luke. I don't know if you're still there, but I want to get to Hebrews. You don't have to go to it if you don't want good friends, but just the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 has one important additional point here. Uh, this has to do with, with weight. Uh, look at 12 verse 1 here. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Weight. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Yes, I'd love to keep reading this beautiful passage, but do you see there, good friends, that weight and sin are associated with each other? And people have known this for a long time. Don't they say heavy is sin? Isn't that sort of an expression? Uh, Swedenborg says that evil is heavy and falls into hell of its own accord. And so it says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. That's what that weight is. So when Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you, for my you know, yoke is easy, my burden, light. He's going to lighten the burden. Uh, so uh, distress is about narrowness, as we've talked about. Debt, I think, has something to do with it's obviously an obligation or that you owe somebody. And uh, it's associated even in English, isn't it, with a burden, like a debt burden. That's a burden that you carry. It's a, it's a weight of, of debt. You know, people say saddled with debt, don't they? It's like... You've got this, this heaviness of debt. And the discontent we heard about was a narrowness, or I'm sorry, a bitterness of soul. So let's say for distress, this is, I'll just say narrow there. Uh, for debt, uh, this would be um, burden. And discontent is a bitterness of soul. So you may be familiar with Swedenborg's idea that all these things in Scripture, you know, it's not just sort of trivially mentioned, and it's not that you mentioned the debt first and then the distress or the dis discontent. For, it's all in a very specific order for, for a reason. And the fact that David's story reflects Jephthah's story, which reflects Jesus' story, but in different ways, you know, it, it's all fraught with meaning. So what does this mean? Helpfully, Swedenborg never explains this passage. So we're on our own. So uh, what the distress, what I believe the stress means narrow, like if it's so narrow you can't breathe, that anguish, you know, that he was talking about. Breathing has to do with truth. It has to do with the mind and things that you think. And Swedenborg says we're very interesting. Now, this is going to get bizarre, you know, but we're already pretty deep in here, aren't we? Uh, the, um, that wide 
see, there are two basic things. There's love and there's truth, which we, you know, we refer colloquially, don't we, to your, your heart and your mind kind of thing. Heart is the love, mind is the, is the truth side or the thinking side. And that wide has to do with truth. Wide has to do with thinking, it has to do with cognitive and so on. And why that is, is a rather bizarre reason, but Swedenborg says that in the spiritual world, everything faces the Lord and the Lord's in the east. And so wide always means north and south. And so the Lord, love is this way, and so truth is this way. So wide is always, always means truth. When it talks about measuring the city to see if it's as wide as it is long and all that, you know, uh, the wide always has to do with truth. So I think distress is a lack of truth, or it's where you're boxed in by certain false ideas and you can't escape them. You know, some idea like, you're no good, you'll never add up to anything, or, or you know, whatever. These things can imprison us, is another term that Swedenborg uses that you're in this narrow place because, you're, because your thinking has you boxed in. Have you ever felt your mind like a, a, you know, a rat in a hamster wheel or something, just round and round and round and round, like you can't escape these thoughts or something? You know? uh, our thinking can be very confined sometimes. And, and uh, we're in distress because I keep thinking this. I don't even want to think it, but here, you know, this is... So I think distress is of the mind, which is why I used the color blue on this chart, that, that causes a narrow. Swedenborg says that corresponds to the truth or falsity. So the distress is that you're narrow. The debt, does it not say, isn't that that thing in there? It's called the Lord's Prayer or something like that. I think it's quite popular. Uh, that says something about forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors or... Forgive us what we owe, just as we've forgiven those who owe us, or in the, some other translations, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. But the root meaning, ophelimata, in the Greek, is, is from owing. It's a debt. Forgive us our debts. And in Matthew, it says debts, and in Luke, it says sins, in exactly the same place. Forgive us our debts, but Luke says forgive us our sins, in exactly the same place in the Lord's Prayer. It's given two times. I think it's, I don't remember, Matthew 6 and Luke 11 or something like that. But um, uh, so I think that that owing has to do with sin. Didn't we just read that the let us lay aside every weight and the sin, that that burden, the burden is like sin. I think the distress is narrow thinking in your head. Don't people even talk about that? Like narrow, you know. You know, narrow thinking, right? People talk about that. And the debt is like you're carrying this burden in your heart. Some of the burden is because of things you did. Bad things, you know, bad things you did. Boom. And it's just like a lump in your gut, right? It's just a heavy thing. Don't people talk about baggage? <laughs> Don't they say like you're hauling around this baggage or something like that? Your baggage is this debt, says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, uh, that we ask the Lord for forgiveness of these debts. And in Luke, it says, forgive us our sins, for even we forgive those who owe us. And uh, so owing and debt has to do with evil. So distress has to do with falsity or the opposite of truth. Debt has to do with evil, which is the opposite of love. So these are people, what the spiritual meaning of these people who are drawn to David are people who were stuck in this, just sick of it, you know, stuck in this narrow thinking. They've got this, this baggage, this stuff that happened or stuff that they, you know, addictions that they have in their heart. Is there anything else, good friends, that is heavier 
and even literally costly than like an addiction. You know what I mean? Costly, right? Doesn't it even literally, addictions can drive you literally into debt. So these things that you have in your heart that, that, that you love, even if you don't want it and it's just like a lump in your soul or something, that has to do with that debt. That's such extreme debt that you can't even pay it, you know? Like if you're so badly in debt, then the taskmasters are coming around all the time and want to throw you into debtor's prison or whatever. If you're so indebted through whatever it is that you're hooked on some evil or some something or other, that you, 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 can just, you can never pay it. It's more than you can possibly pay. You've already paid with everything good in your life and you're left with nothing. So what do you have left, you know? You're so deep in debt, you're so far in distress that it's causing you, number three, bitterness in your soul. I think that's the result of these other two. You know, falsity in your mind, uh, difficult things in your, in your heart or evil or things that you did that you regret or whatever, and this is causing you bitterness of soul. Is it not the magnificent mercy of the Lord that he's got a plan? He wants to call people like that. He said, oh, I've been looking for you. I've been looking for people like you. Oh, is your debt monstrous? Can't breathe? I've been looking for you. Is your soul all bitter? You can't, can't bear life? You just want to get out? Leave everything behind and start over again? I've been looking for somebody like you. I think I can work with you. I'll be your leader. I'll work with you. Talk to you train you some stuff, turn you in a little army, you know, civilize you, bring, bring you into the fold and everything. This is what the Lord wants to do. What was he doing with those tax collectors and sinners? About repentance, right? The, those who are well don't need a doctor. I'm the doctor. I want to help you. Just the kind of people I want. A whole bunch of sick people show up. He says, great, excellent. Just the army that I was, I was looking for. It's amazing that the Lord has that. And it's kind of cool. It makes perfect sense in the literal account of the story that, of course, the high and mighty are not going to leave everything and go out and join David out in the field or in the cave of Adullam, you know. Uh, of course, it's the ne'er-do-wells and the misfits who go out there, but they're the early adopters. Over time, David turns into the king of the whole kingdom of Judah, and he has his kingdom in Hebron. He's there for seven and a half years. Oh, and then he becomes king of the north as well. They want him as well. He moves into Jerusalem. Now he's uniting the whole kingdom and everything. And all of a sudden, he's, he's, he's great, and uh, he's revered for the Psalms and his philosophy and wisdom and, and all these things. But these dirtbags were the first people who got on board with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> They were early adopters. They started following him around before it was popular, before it could get, you know, win friends and influence people. Uh, uh, they were out there in the fields with him from the beginning. And so early Christianity was like that. It was, it was hundreds of years before anybody kind of really respectable walked through the door of Christianity, <laughs> you know? The early people were the lowlifers, the slaves who were fed up with whatever, and the people who felt downtrodden, and this group and that group, you know. It, it was generally the poor, and so, you know, of course, because the other people were doing fine. But those people are, are, are broken, they're looking for something and so the Lord gives them something. And that's where Christianity got us the same story. 
right? Those were the first people who went out to the Lord and followed him around. And they became the basis of everything in that amazing wisdom. Who were the Lord's disciples? Were they like uh, the, the great uh, Archbishop so-and-so and, you know, so, <laughs> no, a fisherman, a tax collector? Uh, that's, who he, that's who he worked with, and it kind of makes sense in a way. And um, so when we're in this condition in our spirits, and we all, we all have this, didn't it say everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented went out to him? It's not, a, it's not a subset. It's not a small group. Uh, everybody went out to him. That's a picture of everybody going to the Lord from this position of feeling like, well, I'm downtrodden. I can hardly breathe, and uh, I, I need something. Something needs to be different here. And the astonishing thing, okay, so one thing is, yes, fine. It makes you open for a change. They talk about in the 12-step groups and so on, you hit bottom. You know, okay, so you're... You're, you're more willing to go into a different situation after you, you hit bottom. So is that, what's, is that all that's going on here, is that these people who are in this distressed state are open to the Lord's leading because they've kind of fouled out of every other thing? No, that's not all that this is. Because the astonishing thing is the Lord can actually turn those difficulties into good things. He can, doesn't he love this thing? Don't you see it all over you? That he loves to use, isn't it the, someone, isn't it the, the ex-drunk who can help somebody else? You know what I mean? It's somebody who's been in that situation. It's the very fact that you've been there makes you a better member. It's not just, oh, that's what brought you in. That's an asset. The Lord can turn that, that debt into an asset. Uh, he can do that. Uh, I want to read a couple of scriptures and then we'll wrap this up, good friends. Uh, right in the middle of your Bible, you have the Psalms. There's two more things I wanted to read tonight. Because um, to me, they sum up the Spirit of the Lord in this, in, in this teaching. 34 verses um, 18 to 20. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a, con a, a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Yes, it's just a really basic kind of beautiful teaching that the, the Lord is close to people who have a broken heart. Uh, in other words, this brings us toward the Lord, and He can work with us in this state when we realize, wow, my situation is not good. This is more about an awareness, you know what I mean? It's a state of awareness of realizing, ooh, I'm in a narrow place. I'm undergoing this burden. I have this bitterness in my soul. I want to turn to the Lord. And one last scripture is 51, Psalm 51. Hmm. Verse 16 and 15 to 17. Let's do that. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. 
Yes, the Lord doesn't despise any more than he breaks that bruised reed or the quenches the smoking flax. He respects a broken heart. He knows all about that. So he knows how to work with people who are in that condition. The Lord can lead us from there. So I would say even within ourselves, the first part of us to turn toward the Lord is the part that has known a spiritual distress and debt and discontent. And the Lord wants to work with our ragtag self and develop us. Over time, the Lord can turn us into, into a kingdom, into a glorious kingdom. Uh, but it starts out just with a kind of rebel group out, out, in the, out in the caves. But the Lord can work with us. And the Lord, in an astonishing way, Swedenborg likens it to the way a rainbow can shine through a dark cloud. You can have this great darkness. Maybe you have this great darkness in your life, and it's been difficult and painful and everything. And I love the fact that the Bible gets wades right in here and just says, look, maybe you're feeling this, you know? It's not all super upbeat. It's sort of, maybe you're going through this. Maybe it's really so difficult, you know, that you feel like you can hardly survive, like those horrible things we were talking about earlier. But um, the Lord wants to draw us in that state, and He can turn that. He can turn our narrowness into this broad place. It even gives examples in some of those scriptures that when you go out in that broad place, then you're thinking, if I'm with the Lord, who can hurt me? You know, isn't that a different, isn't that a broad thought? Like you've gone from a narrow thinking into a broader thought that you, you, you see who the Lord is. You have a different kind of truth. You have this great expanse of truth from north to south in your mind because the Lord led you out into a broad place. Uh, the Lord can turn our spiritual debt into an asset, which is just astonishing. How does he do that? But somehow he's able to make that thing a good thing. It's a good thing. He can turn that into, it's a good thing that, that, you, that you went through that. I can use that, he says. We'll take care of that. I want to heal you of it. But, but it's good that it happened because I can get some good out of that. And he can turn our, our discontent, our bitterness of soul and that deep place in ourselves, he can turn that into um, innocence and, and peace and happiness, contentedness, a feeling of being just unbelievably blessed, pressed down, shaken, overflowing. You know, uh, he, he, can, he can turn this whole thing around for us. So I love that image of David with that rough, ragged group out there in the cave. Because that's a picture of the Lord with us, with those parts of ourselves that are, that are broken, that didn't, didn't do right, and that are being strangled by hell or are going through a difficult experience or whatever. Uh, the Lord is so out of his mind with love that he wants to work with us. That's who he wants to be with. He wants to be with us and bring us forward into a broad place, turn that debt into an asset, and turn our discontent into happiness and contentedness. Thank you for your kind attention, good friends. Let's close with a prayer.
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world to save us. We call to you from this state of distress. We ask for your help. Only you truly know, Lord, the straits that we go through, the difficult things in the midnight hour. We pray for your help. We pray for your kindness to forgive the debts that are weighing in our hearts, the things that we owe you that we didn't do right. We pray for your help with that discontent, that bitterness deep in our soul. May it lead as it did with Hannah to the birth of something new, that young Samuel the prophet who goes on to lead the people. We thank you, Lord, for your unbelievable mercy and kindness for drawing us. You say, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so the Lord can take care of that debt problem. <laughs>